I'm Bob Schieffer. And I'm Andrew Schwartz of the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and this is The Truth of the Matter. This is the podcast where we break down the policy issues of the day. Since the politicians are having their say, we will excuse them with respect and bring in the experts, many of them from CSIS, people who have been working these issues for years. No spin, no bombast, no finger pointing, just informed discussion. In today's episode of The Truth of the Matter, I'm flying solo as Bob Schieffer is out of town. Seth, we've seen over the last couple of weeks violence in the streets of America. Your report has been cited all over the place about domestic terrorism and where it's coming from. Can you square the circle here and explain what's going on or what you think is going on? Sure, Andrew. And just to highlight what the report looked at, we looked at the number every year of domestic terrorist attacks and plots. So in the United States between 1994 and 2020. And what we noticed is there's been a notable shift in the percentage of attacks and plots of different types of organizations. So Not surprisingly, after 9-11, we saw an uptick in religiously inspired, particularly Salafi jihadist plots and attacks in the U.S., individuals inspired first by al-Qaeda and then the Islamic State. But those numbers and the percentage of domestic terrorism plots and attacks over the last few years has decreased a lot of those kinds of inspired attacks. And what we've seen is an increase in white supremacist, militia, and what we call far left attacks, individuals like anarchists. And in 2019, for example, what our data indicated is that just over 60% of the plots and attacks in the U.S. were coming from far right entities. And in the time, in the, the period we looked at in 2020, which was January 1st through around the beginning of May, so before most of the protests started, we were up at over 90% of the plots and attacks were coming from white supremacists and militia groups, sort of far-right entities. So it's 90% this year? 90% through the beginning of May. We're in the process of updating those numbers. They're clearly going to shift with the protests over the summer and with some of the attacks that you noted earlier. What we're seeing, though, is really what I'll call it sort of radicalization on all sides individuals coming into cities now facing off against each other and they're armed. So uh, increasingly outside of the activities of law enforcement. So, you know, Michael Reinhold, an Antifa supporter and an army veteran was the alleged shooter in Portland. In the Kenosha case, it was someone from uh, the far right who was a supporter of a local militia group who then shot and killed Uh, allegedly two individuals. So they're coming from all sides. And we have well-armed people in American cities now on opposite sides politically that are facing off against each other. It's a really toxic mix right now. So just going back to the stats you have, you said about two-thirds initially were from right-wing extremist groups. And then from January through May, it's about 90% right-wing extremist groups. But now, in the last couple of weeks, we're seeing really it on both sides. You saw a murder 
in Portland that came from, I guess, a left-wing extremist group or extremist person. And then you're seeing in Kenosha on the right. So why is this all happening now? Well, there are a couple of reasons that are pulling people onto the streets to face off against each other. One is that it is an election year. So there are individuals that support President Trump and there are individuals that oppose President Trump that have been coming out in the streets. I mean, the Portland case is a good example of that. Portland's been a location where there have been protesters on the streets and the recent attack allegedly by Michael Reinhold was in response to a pro-Trump rally. So the elections are feeding into this. Obviously, in addition, there are other key elements. One of them is the Black Lives Matter movement and the broader protests in support of fixing America's problems with racism. So, you know, we saw those across and over the course of the summer. Those kinds of uh, protests continue in U.S. cities. With some of the protests, we've seen a small fringe group that's done some looting. And then in addition to that, there's been COVID. So there have been protests we've seen against various state and in some cases federal and certainly local government agencies about whether it's mask requirements or vaccines. So there are at least three major issues that are bubbling around the U.S. right now and that are causing also a lot of back and forth on social media. I mean, it's it's explosive, both in cities like Kenosha, Portland, as well as online. Do we expect that this is going to get worse as we get closer to the election? And are you fearing that the election is going to spark even more violence? Andrew, my concern is that even now, mainstream individuals that support their presidential candidates are talking about this election as being the most consequential election of our lifetime. The other side is being painted as almost evil and might take us in a direction where the entire makeup, social structure, political structure of the U.S. will change based on the election. You know, if Biden wins, it's, it's a Marxist state. If Trump wins, it's a fascist state. So the, the battle lines are being drawn. And I think the concern is that even if there's a clear victor in November, that the battle lines have been drawn so sharply now that there will be violence because some people will not view as legitimate the winner. And I see the violence potentially taking place in different forms. If Biden wins, you know, militia groups have already said they view him as illegitimate. And I think there are certainly concerns about them trying to seize territory, protect businesses, even with organizations like white supremacists conducting attacks, firearms attacks, which another study we put out shows that firearms are a particular weapon of choice for some of these organizations. And then if Trump were to win outright, I think the concern there, as we've looked at it, is that we'd see widespread protests, and in those cases also some that are rioting and looting. And so urban areas may pull people from all sides together in close quarters, heavily armed. It's almost like we're moving towards anarchy in some areas where people are trying to take the law into their own hands. Have we ever seen conditions like this in the United States? 
Well, probably the closest we've had to something like this recently is the, you know, the rioting in and around the Vietnam War, so the 1960s and early 1970s. But what's different in this current period is the views of individuals are being radicalized and sent around on social media in ways that they never have in the past. So the social media, digital platforms, whether it's Facebook or some of the dark web platforms, they're exchanging information and radicalizing individuals in ways that I don't think we have precedence for, at least in recent American history. Right. This isn't passing out paper leaflets and posting stuff at coffee houses and saying, show up. This is spreading like wildfire on the web. Yeah. And what's concerning is we've seen a lot of disinformation as well. So there have been parts of even some of the protests. We've seen far right groups posing as Antifa online and encouraging individuals to loot. And in fact, you know, Facebook had to take some of those sites down. So did Twitter because they were fake sites and fake accounts. So the disinformation component that's real time is also a serious concern. And then when you add foreign actors to this, growing concern about Russian intelligence operations on social media platforms in the U.S., potential Chinese operations, then you're really complicating the social media picture. What should the social media companies be doing to address this? You know, a number of the social media companies, I think, have taken some helpful steps in taking down Facebook pages, for example, that violate their terms of service. Facebook has tried to do this in ways that, you know, they've taken down some uh, militia groups and white supremacists that are supporting or appear to be supporting violence. Uh, They've also taken down some Antifa or anti-fascist Facebook accounts. They've also looked very closely at, say, uh, Antifa-line journals like It's Going Down and trying to get the general support for violence off of their platforms. I think that's been helpful to some degree, but I think a lot more needs to happen. And, you know, these companies can take these steps on their platforms. It's not entirely free press on their platforms people do have to abide by their terms of service. So I think we got to be really careful in minimizing incendiary comments, especially ones that can encourage people to use violence on these kinds of platforms. Now, that's not going to be possible as you get into sort of second and third tier uh, platforms or chat rooms on the internet or even to the dark web. Uh, You're never going to get rid of those kinds. But on the big platforms that people use, I think Social media companies can continue to keep a very close eye on this. So are there differing methods between how people are being radicalized on the far left and the far right, or is it kind of the same? Well, there are similarities. And in fact, what we've seen is extremists from all sides have taken some lessons from groups like the Islamic State, which have been really effective at doing a whole range of things on the internet and digital platforms. Well, let me me get this straight. U.S., groups have taken something from the Islamic State? Yes. U.S. domestic extremist groups have taken lessons from the Islamic State and Al-Qaeda. In fact, one of the best examples of this is the white supremacist organization in the United States that calls itself the base after Al-Qaeda. Al-Qaeda itself translates as the base. And it's how they structured themselves, the kinds of attacks they conducted, 
and a lot of the social media that they've used. So yes, they have taken lessons from jihadist groups. Obviously, the ideology is is very different. But on the far right, we've seen them using a lot of different kinds of uh, social media platforms, Discord, 8chan, to uh, get information out, to communicate, to organize, to radicalize. And I think that the uh, same along the lines of anarchists and some of the anti-fascists. And Andrew, what's been particularly concerning is that this is not just about the U.S. White supremacist organizations in the U.S., Adam Waffen Division, for example, has cells in Europe. So there have been a range of manifestos that have circulated, including after the attacks in New Zealand that have radicalized individuals in the U.S. that have been put online, including on the Internet. So there is a transnational component to far right and far left extremism, which indicates this is a much bigger problem than just inside the U.S. Let's talk about the left for a minute. Where is it coming from with the left and how are they different in terms of their radicalization from the far right? So if we take the, the left, I mean, let's take, say, the anti-fascists. They've got a pedigree that goes back to the period after World War II, including to this major iconic incident that takes place outside of London, what became known as the Battle of Cable Street. They have used violence and the threat of violence to push back against fascists since well before World War II. More recently, what we've seen is an increase in the size of Antifa and Antifa sympathizers in the U.S. It's a very decentralized network. Um, There's no clear command and control structure. There are no definitive texts. There's certainly no centralized command, but it's more of individuals that support various elements of anti-fascism, anti-racism, the alt-right. They push back against the alt-right. And what they are, they're more like counter-protesters. So if they see individuals that they consider fascists or racists demonstrating or involved in uh, protests, they will go and be prepared to use everything from fists to knives and even to firearms. They've been involved in some limited violence over the years. One of the most concerning ones was in July 2019, where uh, Willem von Spronsen, an Antifa supporter, conducted an attack against the uh, U.S. Immigration Customs Enforcement Detention Facility in Tacoma, Washington. He brought an AR-15 semi-automatic rifle, and he attempted to ignite a 500-gallon propane tank. He was killed by police during that. But we've seen, you know, Antifa supporters in Spokane, Washington, Portland, Oregon, Minneapolis, Minnesota. They're generally not involved in a lot of what I would call offensive violence. It's more reactionary. But I think as as we've potentially seen in Portland, if Michael Reinhold, who does appear to be a, an Antifa supporter, was involved in that attack, you know, that's a concerning development because they are now coming to demonstrations armed. What do we know about this Michael Reinhold? Well, he apparently is an Antifa supporter and supports a broader effort to push back against what he considers fascism and racism. He's an army veteran, and he's been a fixture in anti-police demonstrations in Portland, Oregon. And the fact that he's an army veteran 
And we've seen this with militia groups and white supremacists as well that are army veterans, or in some cases with Boogaloo active duty, is they have the capability to uh, conduct attacks. They can handle a weapon pretty well. In some cases, as we saw in the 1990s with Timothy McVeigh, they may have explosives capabilities. They can build bombs and, and set them off. So, you know, one of the concerns with Reinhold is, is he's an army veteran. He can handle a weapon. And he obviously showed that on August 29th when he appears to have now shot a far right individual who was pepper spraying him in the streets of Portland. And there's actual video of this. Yeah, I've watched the video. So have I. It's a little grainy and the context is not entirely clear. And in these kinds of incidents, what happens before that obviously matters a great deal, but it's, it's definitely concerning. And the thing I would highlight is we have armed individuals on both sides that are now facing off against each other in American cities. It's a really dangerous precedent that's happening outside of law enforcement. Yeah. So how does law enforcement respond to this? You've got armed Americans claiming Second Amendment rights, assembling in public before they're firing bullets at each other. They're they're yelling at each other. They're shooting paintball at each other. They're waving sticks in the air. I mean, this is real mob violence stuff in certain cities. So what do police and federal authorities need to do to address this kind of violence? Well, it's going to be a big challenge. And it's going to be a big challenge because we've seen in like Oakdale, California, for example, some of the militia that have moved into parts of the area are as well-armed as law enforcement. So in some cases, we're seeing individuals as well-armed as law enforcement. In some cases, maybe even better. They're more armed like SWAT teams. I mean, the cops don't have ARs, right? Well, it's, I mean, you know, any SWAT team is going to have right. special weapons like that and tactics. But I think what some cities are going to have to do is start creating no-go areas where you cannot bring weapons into areas because of the possibility of violence. But this is a huge problem because there aren't going to be enough law enforcement in cities to keep track of every street, especially think for a moment about demonstrators that are getting into vehicles with flags and driving down streets. There can be various areas where there are potential confrontations. There's no way law enforcement can be at every location at every point along the way 24-7. So what they may have to do is at least take parts of cities and make them no-go areas, can't bring weapons in, can't bring paintball, there are no weapons areas, and work along those lines. And I think the number of law enforcement that are going to have to be around during the voting for the election and post-election are going to have to be significant. Well, this is a lot to think about, Seth. As we get closer to the election, let's keep talking about this because I fear that we're going to have a lot to talk about based on your research and, and what we're seeing live on television every day. Yeah, I'm definitely concerned, and I think people should be concerned. And I think what we need is political leaders from all parties to not start taking sides in this, to not encouraging vitriolic comments, to not argue that this election, we have presidential elections in the U.S. every four years. There'll be an election four years from now. So this is not cataclysmic, that our country will make it through and that people have to respect the rule of law, whatever side of the political spectrum, but that our lawmakers and senior 
party officials really have got to start ratcheting down the rhetoric or else it's going to make this problem worse rather than better. Seth Jones, thank you for helping us get to the truth of the matter on this very, very serious issue. Thanks, Andrew. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 